Let me ask you to take your Bibles and turn with me to chapter 9 of the Gospel of Luke. We're going to look at verses 28 to 36. And this passage proclaims to us the transfiguration of our Savior on the mountain. Here God's Word says, He took Peter, John, and James with him and went up onto a mountain to pray. As he was praying, the appearance of his face changed, and his clothes became as bright as a flash of lightning. Two men, Moses and Elijah, appeared in glorious splendor, talking with Jesus. They spoke about his departure, which he was about to bring to fulfillment at Jerusalem. Peter and his companions were very sleepy, but when they became fully awake, they saw his glory and the two men standing with him. As the men were leaving Jesus, Peter said to him, Master, it is good for us to be here. Let us put up three shelters, one for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah. He did not know what he was saying. While he was speaking, a cloud appeared and enveloped them, and they were afraid as they entered the cloud. A voice came from the cloud saying, This is my son, whom I have chosen. Listen to him. When the voice had spoken, they found that Jesus was alone. The disciples kept this to themselves and told no one at that time what they had seen. The word of the Lord, thanks be to God. Well, we know that life is full of surprises. Marriage is one. It all begins with gazing into each other's eyes in a coffee shop, planning together an idyllic future with perfect jobs, perfect children who will never do wrong, and a perfect home to live in. After all, we vowed all the way back in that coffee shop that we would never, ever make the same mistakes as our parents. We were going to do much, much better. We were going to live happily ever after. And then one day, we got married. (laughs) And your spouse finds out the dirty, rotten secret that you have desperately hidden from day one. They find out that you are a sinner. And the same is true for you. You get married, you begin to live with this person, and you just can't believe the things that they do. And you say, how did all this happen? There were no fights over bills, or how to discipline our children, or where we would live before we got married. And the shock suddenly sets in that we look and sound very much like our parents. We had a perfect plan. We even prayed. And we ask God to bless our marriage, to bless our home. So all this must be his fault. And so it goes. The perfect life we had envisioned for ourselves gets bulldozed by the brutal realities of the world. Well, Peter and James and John are in for a great surprise that they did not anticipate when they first began to follow Jesus. They had it all planned out. 
Jesus, the great miracle worker and prophet, was on the scene. And everything in the world was going to be made right. There was going to be no more suffering, no more sorrow. And then Peter makes the great confession that Jesus is the Christ. And everything goes downhill from there. Jesus tells them he's going to be killed by the religious leaders in Jerusalem. And anyone who would follow him must bear his cross and not value his life. Now these three disciples are no different than you or I. They might not drive Chevrolets or talk on iPhones, but they were sinners just like you and I who wanted the good life with no suffering. It's not recorded in Luke, but we know from Matthew that after Peter makes his great confession, he tells Jesus it's not right for him to go to the cross. Surely there is a better way. Surely all this talk about being killed is utter nonsense. Peter wasn't going to stand for any talk about Jesus being put to death. He would have no crucified Messiah. Maybe Peter thought, Jesus just hasn't had his morning cup of coffee quite yet. Maybe Peter reasoned, even great prophets make mistakes sometimes. Surely Jesus was wrong. And this is why in the Gospel of Matthew, Jesus' response to Peter is, Get behind me, Satan. Because Peter is tempting Jesus to not go to the cross for the salvation of humanity. Peter wanted a very different kind of kingdom, didn't he? Peter wanted God to reveal his kingdom by destroying those filthy, rotten Romans. He wanted Jesus to set up a new kingdom in power and glory with no suffering. After all, they had been with Jesus. He was running all over the place to heal the sick, to feed the hungry, to raise the dead. Death and suffering for God's people was supposed to be on its way out the door. But Jesus' message to the disciples is quite shocking and it's quite different. He plainly tells us there is no coming of the kingdom of God unless he is crucified. In fact, he says this is the order of the kingdom. There is no Christ unless he's crucified. There are no disciples without a cross. And there is no glory without suffering. Ouch. Painful, hard, difficult message. And so with Peter and James and John, we need to journey with Jesus up to the top of the mountain so that we can hear what he has to say about his kingdom. Because like the disciples, we have our own conceptions of what the kingdom of God should look like and what our lives should look like. Well, from this passage, we know that while Jesus is on the mountain, his appearance is transfigured. He is transformed. And what was common to men now shines like the brightness of the sun. What was known by angels is revealed to men. The brilliant glory of God hidden under flesh and blood explodes in the glory of the eternal Son. Moses and Elijah appear, and they are speaking with Jesus about his departure. Luke literally uses the word his exodus. The exodus that he is going to make at Jerusalem. They're talking with Jesus about his saving work on the horrible cross that is going to be accomplished at Jerusalem. 
They're not talking about how glorious and how wonderful he looks. It's there for all to see. His radiant glory is there to bear witness that his words about going to the cross are, in fact, true. He is going to die. But Peter, like us, can't help himself. He can't quite shake his visions of glory. He's not listening. He misses the whole point. And he blurts out and says, Lord, it's good for us to be here. Let us build three tabernacles. One for you, one for Elijah, and one for Moses. Peter's thinking that way when it comes time to tell everybody about what just happened, we have a monument so we can remember this exact spot. And Jesus, this is so much better than all this crazy talk about dying. Let's, let's stay and bask in the glory. And then the cloud envelops them. And the Father speaks from heaven. And he says, This is my beloved Son. Listen to him. In other words, God is telling Peter and James and John, you're missing the whole point. You have to shut your mouth. You have to throw away all your misguided visions of glory and triumph and believe that Jesus is going to the cross for you. This is how the kingdom comes, bringing forgiveness of sins for you and for the whole world. And after the Father's words disappear from their ears, the disciples also receive a warning from Jesus. Matthew tells us Jesus warns them to say nothing about this incident to anyone until after he's been raised from the dead. The whole thing ends up being a buzzkill. Right? Who wants to go back down the mountain now? Jesus is back to normal. His glory is gone. And he started talking about dying again. Peter's thinking it's much better to stay on the mountain and bask in glory than to go back down to the bottom of the mountain where suffering awaits. But Jesus takes them down because to stay on the top of the mountain would be outside the order of God's kingdom. Because the order of God's kingdom is this. Suffering first, and then glory. Suffering first, and then glory. But our problem is Peter's problem, isn't it? We don't want to deal with suffering because we don't want to face up to suffering's cause. We don't want to face up to sin. We don't want to deal with it in ourselves. We don't want to deal with it in others. Suffering hurts, and we don't want to hurt. We want to escape. And rather than repent, we so often justify our sin, right? We shift in the pew, we turn away from God's word, and we ignore the callings that God has given us. But Jesus is going back down the mountain. And he is going to continue his way to Jerusalem where he will be crucified. And none of it makes any sense to Peter any more than the cross makes sense to you and I today. It simply doesn't make sense. But Jesus is going back down the mountain. And he is going to be betrayed. He is going to be rejected. He will be arrested. He will be beaten. He will be mocked, spit upon, shamed, uncovered, slandered, striped, pierced through, crucified, dead, and buried. 
he will in fact die the most despicable death possible. A death for the lowest of the low, for the sleaziest of the sleazy. Crucifixion in Jesus' day was something you did not talk about in polite company because it was absolutely horrible. It was nightmarish. But this is what Jesus has come to do. And God is telling us that it is in the shameful suffering of the cross that the kingdom of God is actually revealed. But when the disciples see it, they flee. They run away and they deny Jesus. They don't understand until after the resurrection that the kingdom of God looks like a crucified Savior. Seizing their sins, your sins, and my sins with his strong arms and his bloody hands so they can be put away forever. That's what the kingdom of God looks like. A loving God drawing near to us and sacrificing himself to destroy sin and death and hell forever. With the disciples, we have to come down from the mountain with Jesus. And we are called to bear the cross in the callings that God has given us, in the mundane and painful details of life. And we kick, we scream, we protest, and we say there must be a better way. There must be a different way. Right? Our young people, along with myself and Cassie, experience having to come back down the mountain every year when we leave Ridgehaven. Ridgehaven Camp is a tremendous amount of fun. It's a huge blessing. It's on a mountain. There's a small lake. There's a huge water slide. There's climbing walls. There's volleyball. There's shaving cream games. Who doesn't like shaving cream games? There's all the gaga ball that you would ever want to play. And there's lots of cool, carefree people. All your meals are provided, and they even clean up after us. There's also amazing worship. There's worship that feels so much better than just a regular Sunday. After all, everybody knows that you can't grow spiritually at normal church. You have to go to camp where everything is fun and exciting. You can't name everything you don't like about the people sitting around you because you don't know them. It's hard to dislike the speaker because he's new and fresh. He's never had to call you out on your sin, and you don't know any of his sins. After a week like that, who wants to come back home? Not parents. You aren't ready for us to come back home. After all, you've had a week to remember what it was like without children. It's so nice to have the house to yourself. There's no vacation like a staycation with a clean house with no children to mess it up. But every year, we come back to reality. And every Monday morning, we come back to reality because this is where God would have us live and this is where God has us serving. And seeing Jesus in his glory on the mountain, hearing the Father's voice, we are strengthened for the days ahead. And we know that the cross is the way of God's kingdom. We know it's about suffering. We understand that. But we don't stop there. 
We must, we absolutely must believe that our sufferings and our callings as husbands and wives, sons and daughters, professors, retirees, maintenance men, teachers, stay-at-home moms, and business owners are of tremendous importance. And Christ is truly working through you to reveal his love and grace to fellow sinners. One of my favorite sayings comes from Martin Luther. And he liked to say, God doesn't need your good works, but your neighbor does. God doesn't need your good works, but your neighbor does. And by that, he meant this. God has already forgiven all your sins through Jesus. He's accomplished it. It's finished. It's done. You're free. You're free from sin. You're free from death. You're free from hell. But in this fallen world, your neighbor needs you to show him the love of Christ. And in fact, Jesus ministers his love and grace to your neighbor through you. He does it through you. Even though you and I are fallen sinners, he works through you. Jesus ministers through all of your efforts in working difficult, painful, and long hours to provide for your family, to keep your house clean, to make supper night after night, to help your children with their homework. Jesus works through you, and he enables you to love your parents, even when you don't like them, to bear with the sins of your neighbor that you absolutely cannot stand, to share the good news with your children, and grandchildren that Jesus has died for all their sins. The glorious, wondrous message of the cross is that Jesus, our crucified Savior, is in all the details of the daily grind, ministering through you. And it should come as no surprise to us that a God who allows himself to be crucified by evil men is still present with us and working through the rough and tumble details of life to love and serve saints and sinners alike. And we are called to believe it. We are called to confess it. And we are called to teach it. And so we say, and we know that Jesus is here at the bottom of the mountain. He is with us as we march towards Jerusalem to face down our crosses. And Jesus' call to us is to not lose hope, to never lose hope. Because even in the face of all the surprises that life brings, sickness, tragic loss, depression, persecution, and death, in Christ we overcome. And we see this world differently. We don't see this world simply with our physical eyes, but we see it with eyes of faith. And we see things as they are, redeemed by the blood of Jesus and in need of the love of Jesus. And through Jesus, there is great glory awaiting you in eternity. Life in the presence of God where there is no need for locked doors, for mortgages, for antibiotics, or funerals. There will not even be a need for the sun, for the moon, or the stars, because the Lamb of God is the light of the new world that is to come, that will be yours. 
There is great song and great joy in the hearts of everyone who clings to Christ by faith, for everyone who perseveres in the wilderness of this life and follows Jesus to the promised land. There are great and glorious things awaiting you. And the beloved Son has made it so. And we are called to hear him. And Jesus is at the bottom of the mountain. Let me pray for us. Our gracious and loving Heavenly Father, we so often would like to forget that suffering is at the forefront of what it looks like to be a believer in this life. We so often sin against our callings, even though you have given us these callings to show your love and grace and mercy to our neighbor. And we pray, Heavenly Father, that you would give us new hearts and new eyes to see that we are a new creation in Christ, that we have new life, that there is significance to our suffering, that you are working through it, and that one day, one day you will bring us safely home to be with you forever. We pray that you would guide and lead us through Christ. In Jesus' name, amen.